what a fabulous meal. It was, uh, I'd a whole lot rather be standing here after a meal like that than sitting there. Uh, with you, I certainly have the advantage uh, because number one, I get to stand up and I have a, a focus to stay awake. And so I've got a, a challenge before me. I want the brother that called me Gene not to feel bad at all. You know, I've, I've been called lots worse than Gene. And I remember the very first lectureship I ever spoke on, and uh, I was just kind of smitten, you know, that I would be asked, and I was a young preacher and um, nervous as a cat, you know, and uh, you had to write a manuscript and send it in, and so I get there, my wife's not able to go with me, and so I arrive, and they've got reservations for me at the, at the uh, hotel, and so... I'm walking in there with my suitcase, and I think, I am speaking on a brotherhood lectureship. And there were some older, revered preachers who were sitting over in the lounge area. They had already checked in, and, um, and they had the little brochure, kind of like yours that advertises this, you know. They had the little lectureship brochure, and, and um, so I was feeling like maybe I had arrived, you know. And uh, I... Um, as I was checking in, I could hear them in the background, and they said, Jerry Martin? Who is Jerry Martin? And the other revered brother said, I have no idea. I've never heard of him before in my life. So I was a little deflated. You know, I thought, well, um, but, you know, well, they'll get to hear me speak, and just to be with them is worth it. And so uh, I get there, and I'm encouraged by the other lessons and the the congregation that's hosting the lectureship, if I mentioned the preacher's name, you would all know him. He's very, very well known. He was up in years then, but um, he saw me in the hallway and he said, um, uh, Brother Martin, I want to give you something. So I'm just honored that he called me Brother Martin, you know, and so I walk in his office and he'd written lots of books and that's why you'd know him if I mentioned his name. But since I've already embarrassed him once, I won't embarrass him again. And so I, I go in his office and he writes inside one of the books, you know, and he hands it to me. And so I'm just thinking, this is great. I have arrived. You know, I am, I am one of them. He gave me a book, and he autographed it. And so I sit down before I speak, you know, and I look at the book. He's autographed, and it said, Dear James. <laughs> I thought, well, I do have an Uncle James Martin. I, I, was, trying to, you know, I was trying to make it say, well, it, it wasn't as personalized as I thought. So I thought, well, I've arrived at the, uh, at the lectureship, you know, and so all these older preachers, they tell jokes and everybody laughs, so that's why they're so well known. And so I thought, it's, it's a good time for me to just be one of them. And so I tell this little story just like I told you. I said, I get here and my ego gets a little deflated because here's these brethren, and they thought, Jerry Martin, who's Jerry Martin? I said, kind of got over that, and, and I called the brother's name. I said, he said, Brother Martin, come here, I want to give you something. And I said, so I'm just honored. And I said, and I had the book with me, and I opened it up, and I said, and it says, Dear James. Of course, everybody laughed, but the brother that gave me the book, he, he, did, he didn't laugh. And uh, so after it was over, he said, you just made a fool out of an old preacher. And so I've learned not to, uh, number one, not to be offended if you don't get my name right. And um, uh, I won't try to, I wasn't trying to get even with him. I'm just trying to be funny. But now they all know who Jerry Martin is. He's the one that made the fool out of the old revered preacher. That, <laughs> they couldn't tell you what I preached on, but they can tell you um, how I really didn't handle that very well. 
But it's so good to be with you, and I hope the uh, lessons have been beneficial to you. I told you the very first night, when you see the, the letters after my name, they don't mean anything other than that I went back to school to try to be a better minister. And I hope the lessons that I share with you have reminded you that our instructions for life come from the creator of all things, from God himself. And the textbooks that ought to guide us in the knowledge and wisdom that we ought to have to make us who we ought to be in our relationship with him and with each other come from the holy book divine, the Bible. And I've had the good pleasure of, of having that scripture read to me, taught to me, for me to be able to read it myself all of my life. And I'm here to tell you, if I miss heaven, it's going to be my fault. Because there's never been a time when I didn't know the scriptures. I've always known the scriptures. So if I choose not to follow them, that's going to be my choice. But it also motivates me to want to share it with as many people as I can who don't know it who didn't have that privilege to hear it all their life. And so to have an opportunity to be with you and take that emphasis from his word and say, this is who we, who we ought to be as individuals. This is the kind of marriages we can have and this is the kind of families we don't have. So we can honor the one who designed it all for our good and for our happiness and our joy here so that we could have some concept of what happiness and joy is going to be there. We can't even address him as our father without understanding what he intended for us to have here. What a privilege that is. During this hour, we want to spend a little time talking about the, the pillars of a godly home. If we are the whole unique individuals we ought to be, and we give birth to that healthy relationship that we ought to give birth to, and that we take care of it, and we nurture it, and we... We make sure that it's strong and vibrant the way God designed for it to be. You put all those pieces together, you're going to have the environment that God intended to sustain us while we're here. But I'm fully aware, as you are, that things aren't always perfect. And the only part of that you can control is just your part of that equation. And sometimes those things are kind of taken out of your control and the one thing I did not share with you in the handouts that were available and I'll just quickly mention that to you is the first thing I give every client that I that comes in to see me in a counseling mode it's called a control sheet if you didn't get one there's some on the front pew but on one side it says things in my control and these are problems or concerns that I can do something about on the other side it says things out of my control and these are problems or concerns but I really can't do anything about them. And so what I do is I send this home with them the first time, and, and they are to spend the week, don't sit down all at one time and do it, but just when things come up that you've shared with me to say, I'm depressed, you can't just be generally depressed about what. Once you identify what that is that's depressing you, do you control it or not? You say, well, I'm just angry. Angry about what? Angry is a pretty general term, isn't it? You're angry about what? Give it a name. Decide whether you control it or not. So you spend the week kind of saying, these are things that paralyze me, that, that cripple me, that distract me, that overwhelm me. Now I've identified what they are, and I know whether I control them or not. They'll bring that back to me, and in my presence, I'll make a copy of it and put it in their files just so I can keep them honest and I can be honest. 
But I hand the original copy back to them, and they fold that paper in half, and they tear off and throw away the side they don't control. And there's just something therapeutic about that. When you just thrown away half of that paper, these are problems or concerns. No use you spend any time on that. You don't control it. Now, on that side of the paper you do control, you may still have five or ten things that, that are problems or concerns that you have, but you can do something about it. Now, which one of these do you want us to work on first? And it becomes a process that we just kind of keep simplifying and simplifying and simplifying until we get functional. Because you see, when people reach out for help, they're a little overwhelmed. And what happens to us is we, we go through life rolling this ball along and we collect all these things that frustrate us and overwhelm us and, and this ball gets bigger and bigger and it gets so we just can't hardly push it and, and we don't sort out what we control and what we don't. And we just are so fatigued wrestling over those things we can't do anything about that we don't have any energy left to really address the things we could do something about. I have to do that every day, mentally. Sometimes I have to sit down and take that piece of paper and fold it and say, what is it? Just so I can sort it out. And I want my time to be focused. I want to live life on purpose, with purpose. In order to do that, I've got to be able to sort that out. Just as a side note, again, this is not a chauvinist comment. It's just an observation that I had over the years. Women are usually really polite with this paper in my presence. They very gently tear it in half, almost so you can't hear it tear. And then they'll just fold real neatly the side they don't control, and they'll place it over in the trash can just real gently. And I just let them do it. And then I say, could you hand me that piece of paper, please? Which paper? The one you just placed in the trash can? Sure. They'll hand it to me, and I'll unfold it, and I'll hand it back to them and say, can you read that to me? And they'll read every word. I said, I'll hand it back to them and say, okay, we agreed that we were going to tear that side off, tear it up and throw it away. That's what happens to us when we retrieve these things we can't do anything about. We spend our time and energy on it. Now this time, tear it up. They'll tear it into a thousand pieces. Throw it back in the trash can. I'll say, now can you hand me that piece of paper? And they say, no. Can you put that back together for me? Well, no, that's too many pieces. That's what we got to do mentally to get rid of those things we can't do anything about. So with that in mind, something that you and I can do something about is, is our part in our families. And sometimes the situation is not easy, and sometimes we may be the only one contributing our part, but we can still contribute our part, and it can make a difference. We want to take three chapters, one from the patriarchal age, one from the Mosaic age and one that you just heard read to you from the New Testament age. All of them happen to be chapter 6. And let's take a family context and let's look at those pillars that are required in order for us to have a godly home. Now there are a lot of homes, a lot of definition for homes, and a lot of configurations of home, but we're talking in our setting about a godly home. A home the way God would want it to be because He's first and, and we're trying to do His will and doing it His way and, and therefore have His blessings and His sanctions. But you would recall, wouldn't you, in that patriarchal age in Genesis chapter 6, that it wasn't a very pleasant time to, to be alive. 
In fact, those first few verses said that when the sons of God married the daughters of men, that there were children born unto them, and it describes the circumstances of their culture, their environment, their world. That every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That their thoughts and their imagination were on evil things continually, so much so that it even repented God that he made man. So that tells us that there's an imperfect situation that has occurred in most of the families that were alive on the face of the earth. In fact, all of the families with one exception. In the midst of all that, when it so repented God that he even made man, that man that we read about in those first two chapters, that after he created man, he said, it is very good. And now he said, I wish I had not made man. It had been better for me not to have created him. There's this word, but. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of all that, there was someone that still is described as walking with God. So that lets us know, no matter the circumstance around us, we should never take our eyes off of what our personal relationship is with God. And the very first thing that's required in order for us to have a godly home is that lordship piece, that he comes first. Notice how Noah's introduced to us? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's his relationship to the Lord that draws our attention to, to Noah. And it wasn't that God had to just take his hand and rake back all the human debris and all the sins and, and trying to find someone righteous. Noah stood out because he's walking with God. There's that lordship piece that is in Genesis chapter 6. When you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, it begins by addressing the adults of that population and it tells them that they are to keep God's statutes and, their, and God's judgments. And then it says that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Do you see the lordship pillar there? Firmly placed there, and not only in, in Noah's day, that Noah's walking with God, but now he's telling all the adults of Israel, you have to love me first and foremost. That's where we have to start. That's the first pillar that has to be in place if, if we're going to have a godly home. Now we just had read to us Ephesians chapter 6. When you hear it's children obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The focus is on the Lord. There's a behavior that we are to have as, as individuals in our relationship to the Lord. Have to get that part right. All those are contexts where there's family responsibilities carried out. In Genesis chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and Ephesians chapter 6. And it starts with that lordship pillar. Has to be in place. Have to know that. He has to be first. And if he's not first in our life, then none of this other is going to really matter. Because you see, if he's really the Lord of our life, then we're going to do what he tells us to do. That allows those other pillars to be able to be placed there the way they should. The second godly pillar is leadership. 
when you see that Noah not only is walking with God, but God gives him some very specific instruction. And boy, we preachers, we like those specific instructions. God tells him what the dimensions of the ark is going to be, and we use it in our preaching and making spiritual applications about he's, he's told us how we can enter the, the spiritual ark, the church. And just like all those measurements had to be the same and everything that God told him to do had to do, well, did he do it or not? Where's the leadership pillar in Genesis chapter 6? And the last part of that chapter, repeated in chapter 7, of all the things God commanded Noah, you ready for it? So did he. Everything. So you see, when the Lordship pillar is in place, and he's first and he speaks, then you do what he tells you to do. And he did everything God told him to do. Now we know what happened because he did everything he told him to do. He and his wife, his sons, and their wives were saved in that ark. And that analogy is used like the like figure whereunto does baptism now save us, and we make that application, but sometimes we don't make the application in our homes and our families. He saved his family. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 said, because of his faith and his trust in God, because there was a lordship pillar, that through faith he prepared the ark to the saving of his house. That leadership is obvious. Now listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. After they're told to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, then it said, and teach these things diligently unto thy children. When you walk in the way, when you sit in your house, when you lie down, and when you rise up, there's that leadership pillar that has to be there just like Noah had to say, these are the instructions God gave me. And what we often miss when we're looking at leadership is, it wasn't just Noah that provided leadership. We don't know Miss Noah's name, do we? Well, we know he had a wife. And we know that his wife and his sons and their wives helped him build that ark. And we know there wasn't anybody else to encourage them. And we know there had to be a lot of pressure, a lot of, of social stigma placed upon this one family because they're doing what God said to do in the way He told them to do it. When everybody else's minds on evil things continually, it took every one of them providing some means of leadership to accomplish that. They all had to make decisions to follow those instructions. Ms. Noah was the only one that could have shown her husband respect and, and modeled that for her sons and her daughter-in-laws. She's the only one that could have done that. And she did it. When you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, that, that leadership was spoken to all the adults of Israel. That they were to pride that leadership for their children because they said there's going to come a day when those children are going to say, why? Now the passage is read from Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Where's the leadership piece there? The children are the only ones that can obey their parents in the Lord. Sometimes we preach over children's heads, you know, we, and we're always making application to adults. And, and here is a passage that clearly starts with saying, Children, 
You've been placed in an environment where God wants you to be cared for, but you've got to submit to that environment. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. If your parents in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if those Israelite parents are going to walk with their children and talk with their children and answer their children's questions, then the children are going to have to listen, and that's the leadership that children provide. They're the only one that can do it. If they learn to do that as a child, then they can do that as a child of God. Because you're submitting to Him the way you submitted to your parents. But then it said fathers. Specifically said father. We mentioned this the other night. Sometime when, when we're talking with couples and, and young parents, you know, uh, men have a tendency to say, well, that's, that, that's a woman's thing. You know, they're, they're supposed to nurture the children. I beg to differ. They are to be nurturing. They are naturally nurturing. But that's not what Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 says. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up. Are you ready for it? In the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Is the Lord nurturing? Well, certainly He is. Then you're to model that as a, a father. You're to be nurturing to your household. That, that pillar of lordship is there. Then that pillar of leadership can be there. But it doesn't stop there. There also has to be that, that pillar in place of, of love. Why did Noah build the ark? Why did he do what God tell him, told him to do? Number one, because he loved the Lord. And because he loved his wife and he loved his sons, his daughter-in-laws. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 said, to the saving of his house. Why do he want to save his house? Because he loved them. Why do we want to go to the effort to, to provide the leadership in our home? Because we love them. There's no greater love to, to be extended than that agape love that does for those in our families what they need to have done, when it needs to be done, because we love them. Not thinking about some kind of reciprocal kindness or, or something we deserve or trying to earn respect. We love them, and they need it. The only way his children and his wife are going to be saved on that ark was for him to do what God said do, and he did that because he loved God and he loved them. We've already described in Deuteronomy chapter 6 the statues and judgment that are mentioned in those first few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6 are followed by, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord, and you are to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because you love him, and because you love your family, you're going to teach these statues and these judgments to your family diligently. It's all because of love. You love the Lord and you want them to know the Lord who loves them so they can love the Lord in return. You see, those things that are so simplified are so profound. It was not only emphasized in the patriarchal age and mosaic age, but it certainly accentuated in the New Testament age. Preceding the passages read for us from Ephesians chapter 6, is that chapter that talks about the husbands are to love their wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
So these weren't written in chapters and verses the way we have them, but it makes it convenient for preachers to say Genesis 6, Deuteronomy 6, and Ephesians 6. But they're in a context that illustrates to us that we are to love each other the way God has demonstrated to us how to love. So if I'm to love my wife the way Christ loved the church, I know how sacrificial that love is. And that pillar has to be in place to say, you need to make sure you have that kind of love in your family. And it starts with that husband and wife. But how does that son or that daughter ever get to the age where they can leave that environment of the home and start their own home and it be like God wants it to be? Then they can take that pillar of love with them and they can say one thing I know about my parents and my experience with my parents is they love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and they loved us enough to teach us about God I've emphasized to you multiple times this weekend my mother's been deceased for a number of years but I told her as many times as I could possibly tell her how much I appreciated my earliest memories being of her reading the scriptures. Now, she just had an eighth grade education. My parents divorced when I was eight years old. She still had eight children to raise. Her priorities were to put the Lord first, to love him and make sure we knew who he was and how to love him. I will be eternally indebted for that experience. But that wasn't a perfect environment. All those pieces weren't in place as far as the family dynamics concerned, but the pillars of a godly home were there. The lordship pillar was clear. I knew who the Lord was. I knew how much he loved me and what he'd done for me. I knew how to follow his will because I knew his will. I knew my mother loved me, was willing to discipline me in, in the Lord's word because she did love me and every soul that I would have reached through my preaching or teaching would be directly linked to her you see sometimes we want to take these photographs and it's got to be perfect or we feel diminished in some way we're focusing on the wrong pillars when you do that wasn't perfect in Noah's day was it no it was everything but perfect but his relationship to the Lord was, he made the priorities. And those pillars that needed to be in place were in place. We know it wasn't perfect in the, the time of the Israelites. Deuteronomy is written to remind them of things that they had forgotten and they'd wandered in that wilderness because they'd forgotten. And he said, when you go into the land, it's absolutely essential that these pillars be in place. Yeah. Got to know them. Most of the epistles were written, including the book to, uh, to the Ephesians, were written to make sure that they would be reminded and, and warn them against those things that would distract them and, and to make sure they never forgot how to make sure those pillars are in place. If you have this strong individuals who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they're working together in this family relationship it not only gives them what they need in that relationship, but it glorifies the Father who designed it. And we get to do that. The Lord said, 
Love you one another. I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love you one another. You and I would quickly say, well, that's not a new commandment. You just said it's, it's all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. We're supposed to love. But he said, as I have loved you, even so, love you one another. You ready for it? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have this love one for another. We can do that. That's something we have the capacity to do as, as individuals and that, that's the influence we can have on our families. It may be people in our family who do not share those convictions. But boy, they can see it in us. They can see how much we love the Lord and how much we love them and how we treat them as the Lord would treat them. They get to see the love of the Lord and they'll know we hear His disciple. The final pillar that has to be in place in order for us to be sustained and part of the reason that you're here today is the legacy pillar. Do you know when you read Hebrews chapter 11 that we often refer to the hall of fame of the faithful. It's about people who live back there. But they're being used as examples here. In fact, when you get to chapter 12, book of the Hebrews, it said, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are those witnesses? Everybody they've talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. Seeing that those people in those circumstances, in those times, were faithful to the Lord. Their faith still echoes to us. We can't say it can't be done because they did it. And they are those in the audience who are watching us in our generation. And we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. An inspiring thought, isn't it? So let's see if that legacy pillar is in place in Genesis chapter 6. We've just referred to Hebrews chapter 11. We know the legacy is there, isn't it? Noah obeyed God. His faith demonstrated his, his love for God. And he did that to the saving of his house. The legacy continues. You know you're here today because of Noah. He repented God even made man and he threatened to just wipe man off the face of the earth. Start all over. But he didn't because of Noah. That legacy pillars clearly in place, isn't it? The same is true when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 that describing all those things that they were to teach of their children. You drop down to about verse 25 and it said, because when your children ask you, what meaneth these things, these statues and these judgments? Now the first verse said you are to keep his statues and judgment and you are to teach them diligently to your children. And so when your children say, why do we have to keep these statues and judgment? You are to say to them, when we were in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt, our God took us by a mighty hand and he brought us out. And he's given us this land. And then you rehearse with them what your responsibilities are in this land. But they knew the question was going to be asked. Why do we do these things? Does that drive you crazy as parents? 
do so and so. Why? Well, you know, we, we've got to get ready and go to Bible study. Why? Well, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't treat your brother that way. Why? I mean, why is everywhere, isn't it? We thought, because I said so. And sometimes you just kind of have to get to that point. But the Lord knew that there would be questions asked because the only way you're going to have a legacy, and that means a gift that you bequeath to those who come after you, the only way you're going to be able to bequeath it is to know what it is, to possess it. You cannot give it as a gift to someone else if you do not possess it. So you have to possess this relationship with the Lord. All these other pillars have to be in place. And if that is something you grow up with, then they can say, why are we doing this? And you can tell them. And then when they leave their father and mother and they cleave to each other and they become one flesh and they start this process over, guess what? They know how to put those pillars into place. You bequeath that to them. It's a heritage. I mentioned to you in our worship hour about Miss Olive. Boy, what a gift. Embodied all those things. They put the Lord first in their spiritual life was what it was all about. And, and now she's enacting that, practicing that in her life. And when I wrote that article for that paper, with her permission, I sent her a copy and I sent her two daughters a copy. And I thanked her two daughters for sharing that precious lady with us. What a treasured life. Isn't that a gift? To see someone really practice what God told them to practice and embody all those things and you be able to see it, to witness it. And now you can be able to duplicate it. I am a better husband because I witnessed that. I am appreciative of God's design because I witnessed that. That legacy piece is in place in Ephesians chapter 6. The reason the fathers are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so they can be nurtured and admonished in the Lord. That's a gift. You're bringing them up. You're telling them about the Lord. They can always have a relationship with the Lord. They can share the Lord with their children. What a gift that is. Treasure. In those imperfect situations, there's always those who are in the gathering or maybe experience some of the things I did. My father wasn't around. He never became a Christian. My mother was my mother and my father and my mentor and everything. That wasn't exactly the way God designed it. But that's the way she had to exercise it. But she surrounded me with godly men in the church who could model for me some of those things that I didn't see on a daily basis in our home. She didn't give up on that. And see, didn't the Lord deal with that when Peter said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. In essence, what's in it for us? Remember what the Lord said? There's no man that's left lands or possessions, mother or father, sons or daughters, but shall have restored to them in this life. Mothers, 
sons and daughters, lands and possessions, and in the life to come, eternal life. I didn't understand that for a long time. But you know, when I look back and see my experience in the body of Christ with brothers and sisters like you, though my father wasn't a major part of my life, I had lots of examples of fathers in the faith, hundreds of them, in this life. There's a, hardly any place I could go that I wouldn't have a place to live, to stay with you, multiplied hundreds of times again, in Christ. You've experienced that, haven't you? When you travel anywhere else and you find God's people, you've got a place to stay, food to eat, in this life, and in the life to come, eternal life. That's such a blessing. One other example, the lesson's yours. Just so you don't get discouraged, because I know we'd like for it to be picture perfect. We'd like to have a husband and a wife that adore each other. We'd like to have parents who just do everything they should do for their children. We'd like to have obedient children. But not always is that true. But all these pillars can still be part of your home. One of the most inspiring stories, though we don't know the full story, is found when Paul writes to that young preacher, Timothy, that he's about to turn everything over to. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, to Timothy, when I call to remembrance thine unfeigned faith, which was first of all, listen carefully, was first of all in thy grandmother, Lois, and in thy mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded in thee also. Something's missing there, isn't it? He didn't say in your father, Timothy. In that family where you had all the, the parts in place, he saw in Timothy a, a faith that wasn't pretentious. It wasn't fake, it wasn't weak, it was real, alive and vibrant. And he said, I know where it came from, your grandmother and your mother. Why? Because that lordship pillar was in place. It was obvious. Because that leadership pillar was in place, or he would never learn that faith. Because that love pillar was in place because those two women wouldn't have carried on without the male role if it wasn't their love for the Lord and for each other and for Timothy. That wouldn't have been said of Timothy if that legacy pillar wasn't in place. Because you turn a page, you get to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy and it said, from a child, Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which is able to make thee wise unto salvation. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That means we can have everything God wants us to have, whether those around us want it or not. 
And those two godly women made sure that from a child, Timothy knew that, even though the surroundings weren't exactly perfect, the Word of God makes you perfect. Isn't that encouraging to you? Doesn't that give you hope? There's not a circumstance where there cannot be true of us. Let's take the family contacts we have and let's be the influence on that contact, the very best influence we can be, with full confidence in the Lord's blessings. If you're here this afternoon and you're not a child of God, I might ask you the question, why not? All the provisions that He wants you to have, why not? You can leave here this afternoon a child of God if you listen to this passage we mentioned this morning. Galatians chapter 3 tells how we're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Sounds like a lordship pillar, doesn't it? By faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of us as were baptized in the Christ have put on Christ. We're no more Jew nor Greek, no more bond nor free, no more male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And folks, if we're in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 said that's where all spiritual blessings reside in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, then we are Abraham's seed. Sounds like that legacy pillars in place, doesn't it? Then are we Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs of whom? Heirs of what? Of eternal life. Don't leave here this afternoon without becoming a child of God. If you are a child of God and sometimes you've gotten discouraged, you've, you've looked around and you've seen things that just not like they ought to be, the only part of that you control is the way Noah did, you walk with God. Regardless of what other people are doing, you walk with God. And everything God tells you to do, so do you. And not only will that bless your life and your relationship with the Lord and demonstrate your love for Him, but it will influence those around about you. You see, in our generation, we may be the Noah. If not, why not? We say, well, it's just so, it's just so evil. I don't, know what the, I don't know what the future of our country holds. And, but you know who holds the future of our country? It's the same God. And regardless of what happens to the country, what's going to happen to you and your soul? We're told in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if we don't confess them? That faithful God who's willing to forgive them will not forgive them. And so there are things we need to clean up so that we can make sure those pillars are in place. And let's do that this afternoon. And let's do that now as we stand and as we sing.